I have probably heard that verse a million times in my life. And every time I hear it, there's just something about it that I, 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 there's this thrill in my soul. And I'm so grateful uh, for, for that text that we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, want you to pull out your Bibles. We're going to be looking at several passages this morning as we think about the gift of life, which is the gift of a Savior, Jesus, God's Son, who last week, as we saw, is also Emmanuel, God with us, that God Himself become a baby, has become a, or became a baby, uh, lived a full life, and in that blemish-free, sinless, per- perfect, love-driven life, became our Savior. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And there's also a, a place in your announcement sheet, uh, actually a, an insert in the announcement sheet that you can use to jot down a couple of things that you might want to think about later today. But we're going to be thinking about uh, what it means for Jesus to be our Savior. And we're going to begin with a word of prayer. Father, I, I'm, I'm so grateful to be a part of, of, of a community of people that although we may come from, from, from different places in this world and, and be at different places in our own personal life, that we're all going to end up in Your presence at the end of time. And our thankfulness, Father, and, and, and gratefulness and, and the awe that we have in our heart right now is that it's so not because You've chosen to to make light of sin and just to forgive us an easy way with, without any justice or, or penalties being paid or, or, or crimes being paid for, Father. You have chosen to take that on Yourself in love in order to bring us to You. And it's because of that that our soul magnifies You. you you've not just forgiven us, but changed us and, and brought us into Your human project in such a way, Father, that every day our salvation is an inescapable fact. And for this, we are grateful. So as we study these things this morning, Father, we ask with all of our heart that You will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it and it to, to reside in our heart as the vision that we have for life. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. And all the church said. You, you've heard me say from time to time uh, that during the, the life of Jesus, Judaism was about as fragmented and divided as it ever had been in history. Josephus, who was Jewish and a historian to the Romans about the, the Jewish nation, the Hebrew, the, the nation of Israel, writes during this period of time that there were at least four, there were more divisions, but there were at least four major philosophies of Judaism during the time of Jesus. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the, um, the Zealots. And the, uh, in their own personal way, they were trying to answer a, a question, and that question would go something like this, how do we repair what's wrong with our world? And for them, they would probably narrow that at the end of that sentence a little bit down more to, to Israel. You know, what do we need to do to repair Israel? Because if everything's going great with Israel, then it's great with the world. But my question is, of, of those four philosophies, which one would you probably find yourself identifying with the most? 
Yeah, the Pharisees. The Pharisees, you know, we have with them, you know, we've got to get the nation back to the rules and the norms of godly morality. We have to, to live in such a way that people really, really see the, the, the distance between those that are immoral and those that are moral. And then you have the Sadducees. Sadducees were very, very conservative people in a lot of ways. They did not believe in an afterlife, the resurrection, did not believe in angels. In fact, when it came to the entire Old Testament canon, the, the all, all 39 books of the Old Testament, they would only really accept five of them as inspired by God, the Torah. And for them, because they were working in the present, there is no resurrection, there is no life after this, basically their mantra was, you know, we live a godly and good life. We create the life that we live inside of the structures of the reality or the culture that we find ourselves, and we make the best that we can. Then you have the Essenes. The Essenes thought that the big problem with the world was that culture was fallen. And culture was the huge problem. And especially the, the culture that had begun to, to evolve in Israel during that time with Hellenization and some other factors that were going on. They, they didn't even believe that the priesthood at that time was, was even a sanctified priesthood. They thought it was apostate. And so for them, the Essenes said, you know, because culture is such a huge problem, we don't want to be tainted by culture. This is what we should do. We should probably go out in the wilderness someplace and form a community that lives a holy life. It's just us and God. And then you have the Zealots. And the zealots would say, you know what the problem with the world is right now? Government. Government. Government is the big problem and we need to change government by any means necessary. And we need to change government in order to reflect our traditional values. So, so which, uh, if any, of those four philosophies of first century Judaism do you find yourself identifying with? Now here's the thing. If any of those options were the answer, then Jesus would not have needed to come to earth to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we should have died. That's why we talk about Christmas. That's why we talk about the Christmas story, which is a story of good news. Do you remember what the angels said to the shepherds as they're out there in the fields at night with their sheep? Luke chapter 2, verse 10, he says, I bring you what? Say it. Good news. Good news. That will cause great joy for all people. But you know as well as I do that we live in this fallen world and our world has sort of a warped way of taking good news and turning it into a tragedy. You know, Christmas falls, uh, at least we celebrate Christmas. It didn't really fall on December 25th. It was earlier in the year. But we, as a holiday, we spend December 25th as, as our day of Christmas. But for many Americans, it starts way before that. It starts on the Thursday right after Thanksgiving, and that's known as what? Black Friday. It's Black Friday. The newspapers announce glad tidings and good news of great savings. Cheap TVs. The latest Frozen by Disney gear. Max the tow truck. Barbies. G.I. Joes. Xbox, even Infinities and Lexuses. You get up at 3 or 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning for the stores that are going to open their doors before sunrise, and everybody gets in there and gets those deals. It's a good day. Several years ago, though, good news turned to tragedy for a Walmart employee on Long Island, New York, a fellow by the name of Jedimitai, uh, 
Demore. He was a part-time seasonal worker at Walmart. He really just started working at Walmart back in, uh, at this time. His job was to stock the shelves every morning. And on the particular morning of Black Friday as it rolled around, 2014, he was told at 4.55, we're going to open the doors at 5. We want you at the front doors at 4.55. By the time he gets up there, five minutes before opening, there are over 2,000 people that have formed this, this crowd in front of the Walmart there in Long Island, New York. And they're cold, and they're, the door looks like it's about to open, and then it closes and locks up again. And the people who are cold begin to get frustrated, and frustrated they become agitated. I mean, they're ready to go inside and get some deals. And some of the people, because they're cold and agitated and frustrated, begin to knock on that door and knock on the, on the, the glass. And more and more people begin to do that. And what they, they sense is that there's some give in that glass and on the, those glass doors. And they rush, they shatter the glass. As people are rushing in, the frame falls down on top of Jemidatai uh, Demur. And as he's laying on the ground injured, the people are rushing in to get their bargains. And they see him hurt. But people are stepping over him, and in some cases they're stepping on him to get their bargains. And by the end of the morning, in spite of all of the attempts to administer CPR, Jedimitai uh, Demur is pronounced dead. The Christmas story run amok. And that's why we have to remember the true Christmas story. Last week it was the, the name Emmanuel. God incarnate. God with us. It's the story of the incarnation. The question that I, we're going to start with this morning is this. Why does the angel tell the shepherds in the field that he has good news that will bring joy to people? The answer is found in verse 11. Today in the town of David, a what? Savior has been born to you, the Messiah, the Lord. Now the reason God the Son becomes a human through incarnation is this. Humans need to be saved. Bottom line, the reason God the Son becomes a human through incarnation is because humans need to be saved. Now, the very idea of humans needing, that we need to be saved, cuts across the grain of most of the thinking in our culture. A couple of years ago, the highest virtue in America was the virtue of tolerance. Now, it's still basically the same, but it's, but it's morphed a little bit more. The, the highest a value or virtue in America today is acceptance and affirmation that you accept and affirm. And so here we are being more and more accepting of everybody and everything and affirming everything that comes down the road. And yet, and yet, and yet, there is still a sense, and you hear it from both sides of the conversation with, with liberals and conservatives in their conversations, that even though accepting and affirming, things are still falling apart. There was a, a sociologist slash anthropologist from the 20th century, a fellow by the name of Ernest Becker, who wrote an award-winning book on dying. And he, he's standing back as a scientist, an anthropologist and a sociologist, and he's looking at our world, and he's looking at American culture, and he says, you know, when you, when you really are honest at what you're seeing in American culture right now, you can't help but sense that there is the rumble of panic beneath everything. You know, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. Uh, one of my favorite books, top three that he wrote, is a, a book entitled The Abolition of Man. And inside of that book, there's, there's a chapter entitled Men Without Chests. And, and basically what he's doing is, is writing about how in every culture there is this sense of right and wrong. He calls it, just for argument's sake, the Tao in the book. 
But he says, in every culture, there is this knowledge of right and wrong that everyone possesses, that everyone has, that every, everyone knows is right and, and is wrong. For example, that when somebody is down on the ground hurt, you don't step over them and you don't step on them, but you try to hurt, uh, help them. The problem, he says, is that even though we have this, 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 uh, this common sense of morality, no one can live up to it. Try as we may, we can't live up to it. But just imagine, let's step out of the Bible and the morality that is, is, is instructed and, and expressed and modeled and demonstrated in the Bible. Let's just step out and let's just think about it in the way that Lewis talks about it. Think about a world in which nobody murders anybody. Just think about our world today. No murder. Radically different, right? How about in terms of, of lying? Think about a world in which there was absolutely... Zero percent lies being told day after day after day. The problem is we can't live up to what we know is right. We know how to live. But we fall short. And the reason we fall short is this little thing that the Bible calls, this little problem called sin. The most common word for sin in the Bible means that you kind of stray from the path. It means that you get off the path and that you get overrun by the weeds. You find yourself up to your neck in the weeds and the thorns and the thistles. One of the most common words, in the, the most common word in the New Testament, the word in Greek, hamartia, means that you miss the target. That we are not living the life that God desires and not the life that He created us to live. And because we stray off of the path and because we miss the target, what happens is we humans create global misery and suffering. We do not know how to overcome the problem of not living what we know is right to do. We, we, we create this suffering. We create this anguish. We create this problem. And we are powerless to solve it. And that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need a Savior. The angel says His name is to be Jesus. It is the word Yeshua. Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. That our Messiah comes to us with the name that helps us readily identify what He's going to do. Yeshua is the Lord who saves. Now, the big question we want to finish up with this morning is this. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? In the passage that we looked at last week, dealing with the name Emmanuel, in Matthew chapter 1, the angel says to Joseph in a dream, she, that is Mary, is going to give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Yeshua, or Jesus, because He will what? Save His people from their what? Sins. Now, one of the things that we often do in, in our culture, and, and a lot of times even in, in our church, is we talk about a salvation as a moment in our life, or a moment in, in your life. I can talk about a day in April of 1974 when I made a commitment to live my life to Christ, and you know what? That was a really, really great day for me. My brother and I made that same commitment on the same day and our father baptized both of us in that same church outside of Washington, D.C. It's a great day for us. But the picture of salvation that is given to us in the Bible is so much bigger than what happens on that day. I was, I was saved in the past. That day in April 1974 
But in the present, I am being saved and continue to be saved. And one day, that salvation of my soul will be completely realized when I experience the resurrection and enter into God's presence. And so there are really three things that we need to remember when we talk about and live out the ramifications of being saved. The first is we need to remember that we are forgiven. That's why the news the angels are giving the shepherds out in the field is good news. Human beings are being forgiven of all of the ways that they have strayed off of the path, all of the ways that they have missed the target in the way that they have lived their lives. We are forgiven of all the ways that we have been complicit in bad stuff that happens all over the world. I want to read to you four of these astounding passages that talk about how human sin is forgiven by God. The first one's found in Psalm 103. The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, East going this way, west going that way. As far as east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah chapter 38, Isaiah the great prophet, talking about the great work that God is going to do in the Messiah. He writes about the forgiveness of sins this way, You have put all my sins behind your back. The imagery there is that our sins are in a place where God doesn't see them. Jeremiah 31, another one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. One of the minor prophets, Micah chapter 7, towards the end of the Old Testament. You will again have compassion on us. You'll have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. The imagery there is that God pounds our sins into the dust, buries it into the ground with His his feet. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. To be forgiven means that our guilt is being taken away. To be forgiven means that all of the obstacles that stand between this, this intimate relationship with God are being removed. This is how Jesus is our Savior. He takes our guilt and our sins on Himself. And in love, He pays the penalty of the sin so that I don't have to. It's this forgiveness that reconciles us to God. You remember over in, in Matthew chapter 26, in the Last Supper, Jesus is taking bread and He's taking the cup of wine and He's passing it around and He's explaining what this all means. And as they take this cup of wine and they begin to drink it, he says, this represents my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the what? Forgiveness of sins. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, every time we come together for communion, we are being reminded of the fact that at Christmas, our Savior, our Savior was being born into the world. The picture we have of Jesus hanging on the cross, bearing our sins and the sins of the world is the picture of forgiveness. And the reason that we take forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins, as something special and, and, and something beautiful is that, and, and, why, and why we do this every week is because we recognize that the blood on the floor belongs to the Messiah. And it doesn't matter. It really does not matter how creepy or disturbing or how dirty your sins might be to you or make you feel. They can all be forgiven. 
They can all be forgiven. But that's not where it stops. You're also transformed. I heard this really interesting uh, story recently, or read this interesting story. Back in 2014, there's this Lithuanian fella who has this, I mean, this, this Mercedes-Benz CLK is just absolutely trashed. And what he does is he covers it inside and out with this hardening foam. And once everything is covered up inside and out, he meticulously carves the foam, adds some new wheels and a paint job, and now the car looks like a car of the future inside and out. And this is what it looks like on the outside. That used to be a beat-up wreck. And this is what God does for human beings when He saves them. He begins transforming them into the future version of themselves. Who you will be in His presence for all of eternity on the day that you, through faith and, and repentance and, and through baptism and, and, a, and a commitment for the rest of your life to be a disciple of, of Jesus and to commit your life to God, from that day until the day that you enter into His presence, He's going to be shaping you and forming you and sculpting, sculpting you into the future version of yourself. Quite frankly, this is what it means when, Paul, when Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, you're born again or you're born anew. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, the what church? New creation has come. You're not just forgiven, but the old has gone and the new is here. When you are saved, you're not just being saved from the penalty of your sins. You know what else you're being saved from? You're being saved from the old you. That's not something that happens overnight and that's not something that happens very easily at times. That change that you go through and being transformed and conformed to the image of, of the Christ sometimes happens with, with not a little pain and a little bit of suffering. But that's one of the reasons that God invests His Spirit in you at your baptism. God is jumping into the inside of your very soul and building a new you, the future version of you. Which means that people who always seem to be saying hurtful things and, and hurting the very people they love the most are changed into people who actually use their words to encourage and to build people up and to make them strong. And people who crush people with their anger become more loving and patient and self-controlled. And people who live like slaves to addictions experience a freedom and a peace that they have never known in the middle, in the depths of that addiction. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And this is why there's hope. When God saves me from my sins, He begins to change me from what those sins have made me. And that's one of the reasons why there's such hope attached to that Christmas message. And these changes that happen in you are what really turn you into this beautiful witness, a beautiful testimony to the power of God in a human life in this day and age. And this is where you become enlisted. You join God in this human project. Your life, as we've, we've said over and over, your life becomes maybe the only Bible that anyone ever reads. And as much as they may want to argue about all kinds of things that deal with the Christian faith, the one thing that they can't argue with is a changed life. Have you ever been around a friend who was really messed up and looking to you for help and answers and encouragement or strength? 
or for steps or for a way. And that becomes your opportunity to say, you know what, I've, I've been there and let me introduce you to the one that can save you from yourself. You can't help but be a testimony of hope and of beauty and the power of, of, of God's love and the power of His transforming Spirit in you. You can't help but be a testimony to the people around you. You know, we show up at somebody's house who's lonely or they're going through a long string of some bad days and maybe have resigned themselves to living in a dark place. And you show up maybe on a day like this with a holiday harvest box. And you say, you know, we're the people who have experienced the love of God in such a way that, that it changes us. And we want you to know that you don't have to go through this alone. You're enlisted into the spread of the Gospel in this community. Paul wrote to the church in, in Thessalonica. He says, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Your faith has become known everywhere. You're not just forgiven and live your life unto yourself. You, you're forgiven, but you're forgiven to, to come into a relationship unto God. He saves you unto Himself. And in the process, you become a different individual. You're being conformed to the image of Christ. At 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Spirit of God is changing you by degree, day by day, into the likeness of Jesus. You're being changed into the future version of yourself. You're being saved from your, the old version of yourself. That's what God is doing. And as that is taking place, and you interact with, with, with in places of darkness and in places of meanness, People who have no hope and people who have not ever experienced what it means to be profoundly loved or cared for or seen for the, the human beings that they are. They've been objectified in some way. You go into that place with the eyes of Jesus and the heart of Jesus, the mouth of Jesus and the hands of Jesus with, with kindness and love. And your faith, become, and your faith in God becomes known everywhere. That should be the vision of our church. Is that everywhere we go, we're the people who understand what it means to be in a deluge and surrounded by people and all we have are soggy pretzels. That's all we have. We're trying to make our way. We're trying, we're trying to make our living. And all we have to offer are soggy pretzels. The beauty of that story that Steve told is that there's always someone who's ready to buy that soggy pretzel. You know, sometimes I feel that, that uh, I still have some of the vestiges of that soggy pretzel on me. <laughs> but I know that I'm forgiven. And I know that, that, that God Himself, at great price, at great cost to Himself, has purchased... Soggy pretzel in me. Me and the soggy pretzel completely and forever and is turning me and turning me into a member of His family that looks just like the son that died for me. And not only that, He's filling my heart with joy and peace every day and love it's to the point where it just overflows and, and, and kindness and self-control become a part of all of our lives to the point that there's no place that we go in this world where the world doesn't need somebody like us to manifest that hope. 
We want to offer an invitation to anyone this morning who's never experienced that. You know, quite frankly, we know how to live. We know right and wrong. And we know that we can't do it perfectly. And we know that, that we're complicit in a lot of things that happen in, in our homes and in our families and in our neighborhoods and jobs. world at large. We know we need to be saved. And not just saved in a sense of forgiven and forgiven only, but we need to be forgiven of all of that guilt so that we can, we can enter into this new life that God has for us, where we are transformed and we become imitators of God as beloved children. As John would say in 1 John chapter 2, if we say that we are in Him, we will walk as Jesus walked. And wherever we go, completely unafraid to show the world the best kind of love. The love that comes as a gift from God. A gift of life that comes because there is a Savior. We'll stay here as long as we need uh, this morning uh, to welcome anybody into the, the, the family of Christ through repentance and confession and baptism this morning. If you're here this morning and are ready to give your life to the Messiah and to, to receive the good news and to receive that good news that brings joy to your heart, as Ben leads us in this song, come down to the front and talk to us as we stand and sing together. Wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. A wonderful 